You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda, editor-at-large at The Diplomat and a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. So the Asia Geopolitics podcast is now coming up on, I believe, the second presidential election here in the United States uh, since we started recording this thing in uh, February 2014. And I felt that there was a lot of topics that we could have gone with for this episode, um, but we haven't talked about the Korean Peninsula in a while, and uh, specifically North Korea. And I'm very happy to have on the show today to help me talk about these issues uh, and to really um, pick her brain, um, Jungmin Kim, the Seoul-based correspondent for NK News. Uh, so Jungmin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Um, so, for listeners who don't know, uh, Jungmin is one of the uh, one of the most astute um, Korea watchers out there. Uh, I highly recommend following her on Twitter. Uh, she is an extremely um, astute observer of not only North Korea but uh, the, the entire Korean Peninsula, and I rely quite a bit on her reporting. But uh, Jungmin, if it's all right with you, I was hoping today um, we could just run the gamut a little bit on uh, Korean Peninsula-related issues. I mean, we have a lot to talk about. First, we have, of course. The October 10th military parade, which really um, blew a lot of us away who uh, watch uh, North Korean military equipment. Um, for uh, listeners, if you missed it, uh, Jungmin and I actually did some live commentary of the military parade, which NK News has hosted on uh, YouTube. Um, and that was actually quite a bit of fun. So I'm hoping to talk a bit about uh, that and uh, help our listeners really digest the significance of that parade. But then I also want to talk about uh, internal developments in North Korea. It's certainly been an interesting year, a uh, challenging year for Pyongyang, not least because of the pandemic, but also a slate of natural disasters. Uh, Kim Jong-un's uh, economic plans for his country have not quite gone to plan. So I'd love to get some of your thoughts on that. And then finally, we can talk a little bit about prospects for diplomacy, particularly as we look ahead to what might come on the other side of November 3rd here in the United States. But without me prattling on for too long, um, let's talk a little bit about the events of October 10th. I know we're a little bit further out. It is the end of the month, but this was a significant moment. We saw Kim Jong-un's promised new strategic weapon, a very large monster missile. But more importantly, uh, Kim delivered a fairly revealing speech. Um, Jungmin, can you tell us a little bit about the themes in the speech that really jumped out to you? Uh, what, what was Kim's message, uh, not only to his own people, but the outside world? It was a very interesting speech. Um, I know a lot of global headlines focused on how Kim Jong-un shed tears during his speech, which was true. Um, when I counted it, uh, watching it again, um, he cried, uh, apparently shed tears more than twice and said thank you six times. And I'm sorry, uh, multiple times in various different phrases. So the general theme of this year's Kim speech was that he uh, feels sorry for his people for not delivering, not catering to their economic needs, but that he is very happy that everybody is staying alive and healthy and claiming once again that uh, no North Koreans has contracted COVID-19 despite the um, rampant global pandemic going on for nine months now. Um, when we, uh, he started off with issues on the floods and typhoons, actually. You mentioned that uh, North Korea went through a lot this year, especially this summer. Um, they already closed down the borders uh, since late January, which was a, a very big impact on North Korean economy and also trade. Um, but even like on top of that, this summer, there were multiple floods and typhoons um, even like three or two or three typhoons in just like a span of two weeks. 
and um, international organizations and even North Korea itself admitted that um, thousands were displaced and a lot of houses were destroyed. And um, if we go back to earlier this year, Kim Jong-un had promised a Pyongyang General Hospital um, for the, his people by October 10th. But obviously today is October 9th, uh, 29th as I speak, and they did not um, reveal any um, any uh, results about that construction. And on October 10th, he was saying that um, he feels so sorry for the people um, for not providing what they want um, and how they are not living an affluent life. And in the meanwhile, how he had to ask for people's help, especially the soldier builders and the elites from Pyongyang to be dispatched to the places where um, they mm -hmm. were damaged by the flood and typhoon and when, where they had to rebuild all these um, dozens and dozens of houses. Um, and that was the first time he shed tears. And the second time was when he was talking about COVID. Um, he, he was talking about how North Korea um, succeeded in the effort to lock down the border and safeguard its people from the pandemic and uh, the, the logic it seemed for him to cry and say thank you was that um, he was so concerned, first of all. Um, he uh, very, um, I guess, honestly admitted that he was concerned for the entire year, um, but that he was happy that although people are not that affluent and not economically doing well, at least, quote unquote, we are a harmonious family. Um, that that is staying healthy and alive. And these were the two main themes uh, of Kim Jong-un thanking and being sorry. Mm -hmm. And even aside from that, um, people expect, uh, originally expected that he may have some message towards Washington because the election is coming up. But um, as we all know, a mission is also important with Kim Jong-un's speech and in North Korean leader's speech. He did not mention United States by name, um, he did mention hostile forces a couple of times, which is like a code word for America. Um, and he did mention sanctions and how it is still influencing economic woes in North Korea. But he didn't call out Washington, which was interesting. Yeah. But um, along with that, another interesting thing was how he talked about South Korea and how he waits for the day that he can hold hands again with the South Korean compatriots when all this um, pandemic is over. So these were the main themes, um, being sorry about the natural disasters, um, but still happy and some message to the outside world. Well, thank you for that excellent, excellent rundown of the main themes. Um, and, you know, just to zoom out a little bit from 2020, I mean, first of all, you know, we can all relate to Kim Jong-un. Uh, 2020 did not quite go the way he planned or the way any of us planned. Um, but North Korea certainly has had its fair share of unique challenges to deal with beyond um, the pandemic. And, and, you know, as you said, North Korea's continued insistence that it has zero COVID-19 cases within its borders, of course, um, widely contested um, outside the border. There have been sort of reports here and there, including um, some reporting by uh, NK News, uh, where Jonglin works, uh, suggesting that things have not been quite as watertight as Pyongyang has sought to indicate. But, you know, zooming a bit out from 2020, um, you know, going back to 2017, I mean, in 2017, uh, Kim Jong-un declared his nuclear deterrent complete and 
in April 2018, uh, just a few short days before meeting uh, South Korean President Moon Jae-in for the first time and launching uh, all the diplomacy, uh, he announced uh, that he was turning to a new strategic line of emphasizing economic development, which got a lot of people outside North Korea very excited, implying that Kim Jong-un maybe finally was going to bring some economic reform to the country. And then, of course, uh, the Hanoi summit happens between uh, the United States and North Korea. Things fizzle. There's no sanctions relief. And Kim uh, starts to lay the groundwork in late 2019, uh, telling the Workers' Party of Korea uh, and uh, other internal constituencies that the time has come now to work hard because sanctions relief is not coming. And then 2020 happened. So things have really not gone to plan here. Um, but, you know, looking ahead, um, I think we have, uh, you know, um, I, I always love using this podcast to just put uh, put developments on the radar for our listeners, uh, many of whom don't watch North Korea as closely as you do. And we, of course, um, now are in the middle of this 80-day campaign uh, leading into the end of the year and uh, then finally leading into the Eighth Party Congress. Uh, tell us a little bit about the significance of, of, this, um, of this campaign that's ongoing right now um, and, the, uh, and the upcoming Party Congress. I mean, these were, these were not really a mainstay in North Korea since the 1980s, but it's been uh, revived under Kim Jong-un. Uh, so what should we, um, what should we make of uh, this up- upcoming Party Congress? Yeah, when I was reporting on the 80-day battle for the first time, a lot of um, uh, generalist Korea watchers, when uh, when they saw the term, they were like, battle against what? <laughs> it's like a very North Korean thing. They use time as a tool, as uh, Professor Benjamin Young pointed out. Um, they... Um, they have been doing this often when, like, or according to defectory economists, um, when they were in North Korea, whenever um, there were these deadlines approaching or al- already lapsed, um, they used these time-based uh, speed campaign to boost productivity. Um, for now, when I counted it, it's uh, supposed to end around December 31st because it started around October 13th. Um, and it seems it is crafted as in to meet um, the, around the time when the Eighth Party Congress, like you mentioned, um, will go ahead. Um, North Korea initially announced that the Eighth Party Congress will go ahead sometime in January. They did not specify the date yet. But the general importance of party congresses is that in North Korean system, uh, party is the state and state is the party. And um the party congress we hear a lot of different types of meetings like politburo meeting expanded politburo meeting and so on and so forth and party congress is the biggest one it is the highest decision making body so whenever they are coming up with a major decision um they are they hold the party congress um the seventh party congress also went ahead under kim jong-un and this year um also significant is that um, they are planning uh, in next January during the Eighth Party Congress, they will be announcing the new five-year economic plan, not strategy, um, which means it will be a little bit more detailed, maybe a little bit of more numbers, um, more detailed goals, I mean. Um, so the 80-day eight, battle, um, the way in which it is framed right now in state media is that until the Eighth Party Congress, first of all, they have this... Uh, remaining plan that they already had, which was the five-year economic strategy. Um, And it's about to hit the deadline, but it seems they did not reach the goals um, they originally set up for themselves. Um, So they are using these 80 days until the new year to uh, boost productivity or 
um, speed up the constructions in um, certain areas in North Korea. Um, and as we all know, last year, um, the deadline was set for everybody else outside North Korea because they were talking about year-end deadline for Washington. But this year, it seems the focus is more on the domestic um, economic goals rather than, um, I don't know, international issues. And although um, they are maybe um, on the surface focusing on the economic side um, of the the statecraft maybe um also the party congress falls sometime around uh or before the inauguration in america so um mm -hmm. there could be some united states related message uh, depending on who gets elected um in the white house right right and you know this is sort of a narrower point but um so kim jong-un has been um you know, he, he set himself apart from his uh, much more introverted father by bringing back his grandfather's tradition of a New Year's speech. And he started this in 2013. Uh, but last year, uh, or at the end of 2019, um, that speech was substituted with an address to a meeting of the Central uh, Committee of the Seventh Workers' Party. Uh, and uh, he, you know, basically used that occasion to deliver an analog for what would be a New Year's speech. Do you think the party Congress, uh, again, we don't know the exact date, it might be January 1st, might be later, um, do you think we'll see something similar? Or do you think uh, Kim might go back to the more traditional format this year? I know prediction is always perilous business with North Korea, but uh, I thought I'd just be annoying and ask you that. Well, I I do I do guess that they may be considering uh, replacing the New Year's address with something like a eighth party Congress readout or something related to the. Uh, wrap-up of 80-day battle, a lot of North Korea experts actually are expecting that maybe the New Year's address will be replaced with the party Congress. The reason is whenever uh, the North Korean leader delivers a New Year's speech, they have to recount the achievements uh, the, the country uh, you know, observed in the past year. But this year, honestly, if I were Kim Jong-un, I wouldn't have much to talk about. And he already talked about how the country was safe against COVID-19 in his October 10th speech. And I don't think he has nothing else, like nothing immensely new to bring to the New Year's speech. And um, probably the readout for the party Congress would be better for saving face. And also um, the party Congress would be more about the prospects, future prospects, of the five-year plan, rather than recounting. Um, so yes, I do think that it is certainly possible. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think I'm there right with you. I think uh, it's going to be a better occasion for uh, Kim to look ahead uh, than look at the year behind him. Uh, certainly, I think uh, there'll be, you know, it'll also be a, a period of transition here in the United States, like you said. Uh, that's actually where I want to go to next, and uh, you know, talk a little bit about. Um, geopolitics. And there's two tracks here, um, and I think both are equally important. Uh, I think uh, a lot of the times the U.S.-North Korea um, dyad gets emphasized quite a bit, I guess for good reason. Uh, nuclear deterrence, of course, is, is something worth talking about seriously, but also the inter-Korean aspect. Uh, and it's been a topsy-turvy year for inter-Korean relations uh, with um, the the blowing up of the Kaesong liaison office in the summer and, uh, and uh, you know, the message that Kim just sent to Moon uh, on the parade. But let's talk first about the U.S. and North Korea. Uh, you know, we just had a um, the, the final debate between um, President Trump and Vice President Biden. North Korea did come up at the debate, um, and uh, you know we heard a we heard a few choice words on both sides. Uh, President Trump, for instance, who once famously tweeted that North Korea would never have an ICBM under his watch, uh, you know he acknowledged that North Korea has plenty of nuclear capability, 
uh, and, you know, talked about all his old talking points. Uh, Joe Biden, meanwhile, called Kim Jong-un a thug, implying that he would not go in for the photo op diplomacy that Trump did. Looking at North Korea, though, um, you know, things did not go according to plan for Kim Jong-un's round of engagement with Donald Trump. Uh, And I think the Hanoi summit uh, certainly um, proved to both sides that they were really talking on the the fundamentals. There was a a wide rift between the two sides. What do you think the North Koreans um, are thinking looking at this transition that might be very messy admittedly coming up i mean they know joe biden uh, as as vice president they've heard everything he's been saying on the campaign trail and at the debate uh, there have been of course um, state media missives against joe biden um, meanwhile uh, the personal relationship between trump and kim as best we know from the outside remains well kim wished trump a rapid recovery when he was diagnosed with covid19 um, what do you think? What do you think is going through uh, Kim Jong Un's mind when he's uh, thinking about this election? Uh, what? What? What is? Um, how, how? How does North Korea behave in either outcome? I did run an interesting expert roundup recently, asking them if Kim Jong Un could vote <laughs> as an American citizen, who would he vote to vote for? And all the answers were Trump. Um, it's no secret that. Um, North Korean leadership uh, try to stay low key with United States for the past couple of months, and they uh, after Hanoi summit when it when Trump walked away from Kim, it would have been a trauma for Kim, but still afterwards they tried not to ruin the personal relations with President Trump and between President Trump and Kim Jong Un, and that's no secret. Um, but Still, um, either side wins, it would be a problem for them and it would be uh, it would be a conundrum for them because, first of all, if Biden wins, um, they will have to um, a lot of experts are expecting that there would be an ICBM testing or a Pukuksong 4 testing or something similar. Uh, before inauguration, right, Uh, to use that as a leverage against Washington, they will be thinking about the right timing to use the leverage um, in order to um, have, uh, you know, have have a better hand in this deal, uh, potentially with Biden. Although a lot of people were talking about how Biden will reinstate this uh, strategic patience, um, it seems the Biden administration will also know that a lot has changed. And during the debate, uh, Biden did say that uh, under some conditions, he will be willing, but that condition means um, they will actually work on uh, some tangible progress on denuclearization deal. Um, So that would be a problem. But even if Trump wins, which will probably be Pyongyang's uh, preferred option, um, they already failed in Hanoi, and it, it's still, it's been, what, a, 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 like more than a year, and they could not come to an agreement on uh, Yangbyon plus Alpha or whatever. Um, they could not agree on the term. Um, even if the summit diplomacy was going on, um, it halted because of that fundamental gap. So if Trump wins, Pyongyang will have to, um, come up with a strategy to, you know, work with him for a, a next few more years, and that would also be a problem for Pyongyang. So, um, yeah, either of them wins. Um, I don't know. It would be. Uh, it will be interesting to see if they mention anything about the U.S. and the Party Congress. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I can't really imagine the North Koreans uh, offering a fundamentally new negotiating position um, coming up. But I think there are questions about. 
the kinds of leverage they might seek if uh, if we are indeed heading into a new so-called you know political military campaign where the North Koreans test capabilities. We see that their capabilities are advancing, and we don't want them to advance. So we say, okay, let's talk, and we go into another round. And you know, on the Biden side, I mean, it is interesting if um, obviously all the polls are heavily in favor of a Biden victory. Although you know, caveat emptor when it comes to polling, I suppose. Um, but even um, even in a scenario where Biden is inaugurated, I mean, there would be a policy review, uh, right? Uh, things said on a debate stage uh, during the heat of the campaign, and I, I I said this on Twitter. I mean, you know, candidates campaign in poetry and govern in prose. Um, calling Kim Jong Un a thug is easy at a at a debate, but then uh, once you're in office, uh, you do a policy review, and um, that's where I think there's going to be a lot of interesting uh, dynamics playing out, right? I mean, um, something we learned from the Democratic primaries, at least, is that a a big chunk of the democratic foreign policy community that focuses on non-proliferation in North Korea uh, is sort of having that debate that experts have been having for a while now, which is that, you know, this is no longer a non-proliferation problem, so maybe we need to consider a new approach. And while I, I wouldn't put my money on Biden settling on that, given the strong um, bias towards, I guess, inertia in U.S. foreign policy, right? Uh, inertia meaning that we might end up more where we were in 2016, even if North Korea's capabilities have advanced significantly, um, but that certainly is, um, you know, something to uh, keep an eye out for. Um, but let's talk a little bit about Seoul. I mean, uh, it's been, uh, of course, uh, you know, South Korea uh, has won international plaudits for its handling of the pandemic, but it's been, a, uh, you know, the inter-Korean agenda remains at the top of President Moon's um, uh, portfolio. Uh, him and uh, the Progressive Coalition, of course, after the uh, April elections have a, a remarkable um, degree of political capital to potentially be spent, uh, but there are constraints being, uh, of course, sanctions, uh, the United States. How does uh, Seoul view, uh, first of all, the stakes in the U.S. election, uh, and uh, what are the prognoses for uh, inter-Korean relations in uh, in either, I guess, outcome here in the United States? If I were Moon Jae-in, I would be having some headaches right now. Um, it's a big dilemma for South Korea, although a lot of North Korea watchers focus on um, whether or not Moon will prefer a top-down uh, summit-style leader or a working-level emphasis, um, you know, bottom-up diplomacy-type leader, it's not always just about North Korea, right? Mm -hmm. For South Korea, um, OPCON is also important. Alliance is also important. The cost-sharing deal is also very important, and that has the, that deal has been you know going nowhere for months now. Um, so if Trump wins, maybe uh, for Moon Jae-in and uh, Moon Jae-in, there would be a better chance to uh, reignite the summit tree, um, which will definitely help. Moon Jae-in to have some more progress in inter-Korean relations as well, um, partly because inter-Korean relations w was on, uh, going through an impasse because United States was not having a good relations with North Korea since Hanoi. But um, in terms of alliance, we do know, everybody knows that um, Trump is not a big fan of um, being a responsible and committed um, American uh, a friend, an ally, to the, the tr in a tr traditional sense, right? Um, so if South Korea uh, prioritizes the alliance issue, um, they would maybe prefer Biden because he's more of an institutionalist and um, he is more traditional. He uh, focuses a lot of um, human rights and uh, like traditional values, a, a democracy. Uh, in contrast to Trump, who sort of 
has been for the past four years has been seeing the alliance issue uh, in a very businessman type of rhetoric, um, like making a business deal when they when he sees the cost sharing deal. So it would be a dilemma for Moon. Um, again, whoever wins the White House, um, he cannot have both, I think. And I think going back to North Korea um, and the United States, uh, this timing thing, it would be a complication for Pyongyang as well. Um, although Pyongyang has been slamming Seoul for not being either not being a good mediator or trying to be a mediator, they still, um, we have to give credit to Seoul for jumpstarting the the relations early on the detente early on when they uh, talked about the olympics and so on and so forth um so seoul does have a role sometimes um but moon jae-in only has a, a very few months left a uh, two years left and um if even if a new administration comes in or trump is re-elected um there would be a very little time um a very small window of opportunity uh, for Pyongyang to have both Trump and Moon Jae-in together, um, which has been like a very good combination for um, a lot of symmetries in 2018. Um, so it's a very complicated situation right now for th- uh, all three countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, the stakes the stakes are quite high as we uh, head into this final stretch in 2020. Um, so look, we are, we are running uh, low on time, but I wanted to ask you before we close out, um, We've covered a lot of ground right now, uh, but of course, uh, I know you look at um, North Korea very closely. And I wanted to ask you, as somebody um, you know who who spends her time um, living and breathing North Korea twenty four seven, what's something what's something that you know uh, isn't really getting the kind of attention it should be, uh, or um, you know what's something that you think is just underemphasized when it comes to North Korea right now uh, in in late twenty twenty? What's something that our listeners should be watching for uh, as we head into the transition? Well, that's a tough question. (laughs) (laughs) I like to end with a tough one. My point of view, everything is always important. Um, I think two things. First of all, um, in the October military parade, I think, especially in South Korea, because of the theatrical um, features of the speech, people did not pay that much attention to um, what how they phrased the war deterrent. Um, we talked about this a little bit during the live commentary, um, but I, it seems that they're still playing with the term preemptive strike and they are still phrasing the war deterrent and how they will keep strengthening the war deterrent as the same way that they pronounced in the December plenum last year um, that right now um, they are embracing for a long-term confrontation with the United States and that the only way to safeguard their uh, security is through having war deterrent, meaning um, their strategic weapons and uh, nuclear deterrent as well. And we have to see from this that Pyongyang's view on this wouldn't change that easily, whether or not Trump is reelected. So this is a more fundamental issue, whether or not North Korea really thinks about denuclearization, if it's possible, or if people are on the same terms, if Trump and Kim Jong-un are, when they talk about denuclearization or war deterrent, if they are talking about the same issue. So we have this fundamental thing that we didn't get to solve for the four years. And now we are headed to the November election and whoever comes in, um, they have to solve this more fundamental value gap or definition gap regarding war deterrent and uh, 
uh, denuclearization. Um, and the second thing is that uh, North Korea, although a lot of people, when they see North Korea, um, they uh, tend to think more about how North Korea views other countries and how they shape their policy based on that. But it's not always just about the international relations that they care about or their relations with America. Um, a lot of times, uh, their policy, um, it's decided because of domestic reasons, because they um, they have to cater to the needs of the people or they have to handle certain, certain things about uh, demotion or promotion in the leadership. Uh, so what I'm trying to say is that it seems um, North Korea is certainly going through a lot right now. And um, we have to, I think we have to pay more attention to um, how the, the fact that we sometimes forget a lot that it's a dictatorship and it's a hereditary dictatorship and they need the people to be obedient and they need the people uh, to be uh, satisfied to a certain uh, level, I guess. So I think although a lot of people don't really pay much attention to the upcoming a five-year economic plan and the, the and KCNA when they talk about the rise of how they are increasing productivity in certain areas, I think we need to track that a little more closely. Two very good points. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, on the second point, um, this is something I you know bring up a lot: is uh, politics exists everywhere, and it even exists in monolithic uh, authoritarian states like North Korea. Even even if it doesn't exist in the same way that we understand it in uh, in democratic societies, uh, Kim has constituencies uh, that he oversees and uh, needs to concern himself with. So that's very important. And, and certainly on on the deterrent, I mean, yeah, we could talk about that all day. Uh, the uh, the daylight between the fundamentals uh, that informed the United States and North Korea at the negotiating table. But look, Jungmin, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing uh, your insights. Uh, this was really, really enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And I uh, hope to have you on in the future, too, to talk more about Korea. And for listeners, uh, please, uh, I really recommend uh, Jungmin's Twitter if you're uh, trying to find a, uh, a Korea watcher to add to your uh, rotation. Uh, for listeners, if you've been a subscriber to the podcast but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate if you could do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. We'd uh, we'd love for you to keep up with uh, future coverage on on this podcast. Finally, before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.